0: Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Auden Schindler. Auden is Senior Vice President of Sustainability at Aspen Skiing Company, where he focuses on finding large-scale solutions to climate change, specifically through clean energy and activism. Aspen Skiing Company has long been at the forefront of sustainable business practices, and Auden is one of the main forces behind the scenes driving those efforts, efforts that have positively influenced the ski and outdoor industries at large. In addition to his daily work at Aspen, he's a well-known author and speaker, And he wrote the amazingly impactful book, Getting Green Done, Hard Truths from the Front Lines of the Sustainability Revolution. For a guy who spends his days deep in the trenches fighting the forces of climate change, Alden is surprisingly upbeat, energetic, and funny. As you'll hear, we spend quite a bit of time laughing. But he's far from naive or overly idealistic. He's quick to call out greenwashing when he sees it. And he's unapologetically focused on achieving specific, measurable results. Through trial and error and a lot of hard work, Alden has managed to find the balance of the optimism needed to pursue audacious initiatives with the pragmatism required to succeed in a competitive business environment. From a personal perspective, Alden's work and writing have been especially impactful on my career. I read his book a few months after earning my MBA and it provided a much different perspective from the profit-at-all-cost philosophy that was the norm in business school. So it was obviously an honor to meet him, and I appreciate his letting me hassle him with questions for an hour. We had a wide-ranging and fun conversation discussing his work at Aspen Skiing Company and how he got his start in sustainability. We talked a lot about reading and books, specifically how the works of Cormac McCarthy and Jack Kerouac affected his outlook and approach to work. We chat about his daily routine and how he manages to fit so much into a single day, as well as how he wraps his head around pursuing a goal as overwhelming as solving climate change. We talk about his expedition to Denali, how his kids have changed his outlook, and the importance of daily exercise. And as usual, we discuss favorite books about the West, favorite films, and his favorite location in the West. This is a really great episode, and I know you guys will enjoy it. I can't thank Auden enough for taking the time out of his busy schedule to chat. Links to everything are in the episode notes. Hope you enjoy. I think maybe the the easiest way to go into this is how did you initially get into this business? Where did you come from? How did you end up here in Aspen?
1: So... <clears throat> ignoring the cooking cheeseburgers and other things. Uh, I ended up at, at a place called Rocky mountain Institute, which is mm-hmm. thinking about how can business, you know, save energy and reduce its impact on the environment without a- a- and thrive. And, uh, I was working there when a part-time job showed up here in this department. I was a second guy hired by this mm-hmm. department and, uh, I tore the article out at lunch, and I called the person who um, interviewed me, and I got a half-time job. And I actually stayed at Rocky Mountain Institute uh, half-time, and then this became a full-time job. But the, uh, the transition was going from more theoretical consulting mm-hmm. to real-world.
0: Yeah. And... That's one of the things I found so interesting in your book, Getting Green Done, that we were just talking about, and I read it years ago, is that you really dive into the challenges of going from the theoretical kind of high-level nonprofit, thinking about trying to come up with solutions to this, to actually implementing them in the business world. And so could you just talk a little bit about that transition from theoretical to Dollars and cents, and how that some of the challenges that that came with that.
1: Yeah, and you know, my my kids say you're a cynic, you're a pessimist, (laughs) and I say no, I'm not. I'm a realist. Yeah. And at Rocky Mountain Institute, we'd talk about, hey, you change the light bulbs, you you do energy efficiency. It's it's awesome. It's good for business and the bottom line. And I believed it, and it's true to a point. But I also, at some points, wondered is this actually true? Mm -hmm. And so I came here and I said, I'm going to find out. And, you know, some of the first things that I tried to implement were some of the simplest things you do in sustainability. So changing light bulbs Mm -hmm. and changing light bulbs should have a fifty percent return on investment. Improve the lighting; the lights last longer. Yeah. Um, they're all that you get less labor uh, impacts because you have to change the bulbs and so forth. And I couldn't do it. And that's a long story that I talk about in my book. Sure, but the the barriers to the 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 change were things that no one told me about. Mm-hmm. I thought that if I said there was a fifty percent return on investment, I'd get it done the next day. But I had people who didn't believe that fact. Yeah. So they weren't believing the physics of it. <laughs> and then I had people who, who didn't want to do it because they didn't want to do new things. Mm-hmm. So they manufactured ideas about why it wouldn't work. So one person told me that I couldn't change light bulbs in a garage because you can't pressure wash the ceiling if you use those bulbs. Well, have you been in a garage? <laughs> Nobody washes a garage. <laughs> <laughs> so so when that happened, I had a and, – and I also had people who didn't want to change because they were good managers, sure. because there was no reason to do something different. It was working. And by the way, energy was a teeny percentage of total operating budget. Mm-hmm. So my, my experience and my book is a, in large part about – the difference between theory and reality mm-hmm. and how that informs the challenge of solving climate because if I can't even change a light bulb, how are we going to change you know energy systems and governance and public policy these things that are really hard to change
0: yeah well, one of the interesting things about you from reading the book and from watching some videos and reading articles about you is you seem to have this personal your your, your personality seem to have this um, urge to want to go, 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 go. But then also you balance that with patience because the light bulb thing took forever. And I just picked up the sustainability report. It looks like this year finally got all the light bulbs changed out. And so that was this thing that you were so focused on, but you knew you had to be patient at the same time. So maybe from a personal and professional standpoint, how do you balance your, Um, urge to just go get stuff done with the realities of the business world and having to be patient?
1: You know, I wouldn't accuse me of being patient. Uh, (laughs) That wasn't patience. It was going to battle, getting beat down, getting up, going to battle. So it's not patience. It just took a while. (laughs) Um, But the bigger, you know, on the bigger climate problem, you do have to be patient because you can't move this thing. You know, Mm -hmm. on climate, we have to – We have to restructure society, basically. And so that doesn't happen in a day. And so for me, I look at other social movements and realize how long it took, one. Mm -hmm. Two, that when you felt you were failing, you were actually succeeding. Mm -hmm. So the civil rights movement, when John Lewis was being beat up on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, he probably wasn't too psyched on the movement's prospects. Sure. But it was a turning point. Um, And – And then the other piece is to look at this work less as a destination and a goal, but as a practice. And Mm -hmm. if you think about, you know, working on climate change, it's not – I'm not going to fix this in 10 years. It's how I live my life. It borders on religious practice. Yes. Um, it's, It's what you do. And that doesn't mean it's about individual actions. It's pushing on the system. That's the practice.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And and I was reading something, and you were talking about that exact um, that exact point, point. It reminded me of this book I'd read by Donald Hall. Have you read that, Life Work? I haven't read it. It's, I'll send it to you because yeah. like, there's this quote in there, and I saw it, and I wanted to tell you. It said, the secret to life is having a task, something you devote your entire life to, something you bring everything to every minute of your day for your whole life. And the most important thing is it must be something you cannot possibly do.
1: You know, there's a long... History in in human thought and literature around that, and the, and the idea really is that we are happiest, most gratified if we're involved in a cause greater than ourselves. Yes, and and the idea that that cause must be. Either difficult or impossible is something I've thought a lot about. There are a few few writers who talk about this. So, well, first, John F. Kennedy, right? We didn't go to the moon because it was easy. We <laughs> went right. to the moon because it was hard. Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, the philosopher, said, "Nothing of any importance will be achieved in your lifetime. That's amazing. And he meant that in an encouraging way. Cormac McCarthy, all things of grace and beauty such that we hold them to our hearts have a common providence in pain. You know, this is and then then the story I tell most is The Lord of the Rings, where mm-hmm. people love that story, but it's a story about getting beat down and losing and fighting unconquerable evil that you never actually defeat. You know, read the story They come back, and their hometown, the Shire, is destroyed. Then read Tolkien, and Tolkien says he thinks you never triumph over evil. So it's a practice, and his practice was based in, he was a a Christian thinker, but this is a human idea, which is that, hey, we're mortal. So that's the first battle we're going to lose. We better have a way of dealing with this.
0: How long is it taking you to get your head around that concept? Because you know, when you're eighteen, twenty-two, twenty-four, I mean you could read that and kind of, yeah, yeah, I get it. But I would think that it takes being in the trenches like you for year after year after year to really get it.
1: Yeah. I mean I I regret growing old in a lot of ways. <laughs> and and I don't I I think of myself as thirty, but the benefit of, of growing old has been understanding things like that, mm-hmm. um, the, the nature of practice or the value of humility or losing that youthful, you know, go, 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 coming over the table and being more able to not just – Relax, but listen to other people's perspectives and not even, you know, if people often say, well, we'll just agree to disagree. Well, I don't do that ever. What I do is I put myself in your shoes and understand your position, even if you're you're opposite of me. So I won't agree to disagree. I'll understand your position and disagree with that. Mm -hmm. But that's maturity, you know? And honestly, it took me
0: forever to get here. Sure, sure. That that makes perfect sense and it's refreshing for me to hear that. So, Obviously, you read a ton. You get a lot of inspiration from reading. Um, are there any mentors you've had in the professional world or like as a kid, people that have helped you kind of solidify all these ideas that you've been living and that you've taken from books?
1: Yeah. I mean, I've I've been blessed with great mentors. Um, so... My father was a writer, so he would – when I was a kid, he, I'd write stuff and he'd edit every other word out. Really? And he'd be like, oh, wow, you got to write with few words. You so know? that's you're writing and was. And reading. I grew up in a house with um, 50,000 books probably. What? I mean, it looked like a library. And it was a small house. Like it was gross to a point. Did um, you have a TV?
0: No TV. I'm no, guessing. we had a TV. You did? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, Fifty
1: thousand. Yeah, I mean, just maybe, maybe it's thirty thousand. But uh, the point is, that all point. <laughs> the walls were covered with books. Uh, so, so that was my father, and then, um, and my grandfather was this guy in North Dakota who was a you know hard. He was like what you'd call a hardcore conservative today. That sure. isn't modern conservatism. Sure. But his deal was work hard, quit complaining. That's it. Uh-huh. Just work hard, and. Um, and then his daughter, my mom, had that same kind of North Dakota common sense, which is the realism that I, I brought to the book, Getting Green Done. And then, then as I emerged into adulthood, I had a, an uncle who was a, an environmentalist, a conservationist, who ended up actually working in climate. And he, oh, really? his name was Ted Smith. And he, he and I went backpacking with my other uncle in Montana. And he brutalized me. They did when I was 14. Uh Um, And I was like, this is good. I like this. (laughs) Uh, And then I had another uh, friend and mentor named Randy Udall. Yes. uh, Who, who we did the same thing in the back country, you know, just get brutalized, brutalize ourselves, but we were in the same field as well. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, all of those people have died. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is part of middle age, it's like, okay, dude, you're on your own. And uh to some extent that's my role, you know, is to be that to other people. Sure. So there's been, you know, that that's that's an important idea to me. Um you know another mentor was Ed Marston at High Country News. Mm-hmm. You probably know him, knew him. Yes. But uh I was an intern at High Country News in the nine in nineteen ninety one, I think, and uh only now we have an intern in this office, oh, wow. and it, it, it takes a lot of effort. It you does. Know, it's brutal. Uh, it's really important, but you can't just do your job. You have to spend time with the intern, and and so doing that is a major sacrifice. So, And I didn't realize how big a deal it was when I was an intern.
0: Sure, sure. Um, it's amazing how High Country News continues to come up on this podcast. Like even Pete McBride was uh, worked there for a while and yeah. kind of got him going and just uh, – it's just amazing the, the kind of the spider web that comes out of that place, of the, the positive influence on oh, the Oh, yeah. Place. No, yeah. And so when you were – you grew up on the East Coast. Did you always want to come west, Rocky Mountains, or just anywhere in the west? Or when you, when you were a kid, what was the kind of the, 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 the goal in coming out this way, if there was one?
1: Yeah, so I had um, family in North Dakota and mm-hmm. Montana, and I'd visit them. Yep. And I'd say, wow, this is where I'm from. And I, as a, you know, six-year-old or younger, said to my mom, hey, can I tell people I'm from North Dakota? (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, I thought Mm -hmm. I still do think North Dakota is the most beautiful place in the world. It's cool. And so I knew I wanted out. Half of it was the beauty of the West, and half Mm -hmm. of it was the, the grotesqueness of the East Coast. And, you know, the... Recently, the EPA released some pictures of the United States before the Clean Air Act. Mm-hmm. 1970, I was born in 1970, Clean Air Act, 1970, Clean Water Act, same time period. And I looked at those pictures, and it was a shocking epiphany to me because that was what I hated. You yeah. know, it was – so in, in a lot of ways, the I became – I was driven into the environmental movement by seeing what caused Nixon and Americans to create the EPA, to pass mm-hmm. you know, this important legislation. It was dirty. It was hazy. Um, cars spewed filth. Yep. And that was you – know, I think part of my movement west was an environmental movement escaping the bad, going to a place that was good, and then wanting to work on those issues.
0: Um, Well, it's funny to think back, you know, with all the the flack the EPA is getting these days that that was put in by Republicans. I think a lot of people just don't fully understand that.
1: Right. And and it's in a way a way to think about your Republican friends and Mm -hmm. say, look, the core of this was good. There are a lot of really good ideas here. It's what we see today is not has nothing to do with Grandpa Joe's Republicanism.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, as our mutual friend, Tori Udall mentioned, I'm weirdly obsessed with Theodore Roosevelt. And, you know, he, he was a Republican. There's this long line of Republicans who cared about the environment in one way or the other. And for some reason in our lifetime, that's taken a hard turn, which is, which is pretty interesting.
1: Right. Roosevelt, Roosevelt, you know, this story went camping with John Muir, Sure. came back and then was like to his team, I'm going back. <laughs> he spent a couple more nights out with John Muir. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, amazing. what a great story.
0: Yeah, I love it. I can't get enough of him. And at some point I need to – my my wife thinks I need to calm down about this. <laughs> so does
1: Tori. <laughs> yeah,
0: I think that's a common theme. Um, so one more thing about books that I want to talk about – well, books will probably continue to come up. But I read somewhere that you read Jack Kerouac's On the Road, and that influenced your mind into to – your mentality of go, 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 don't wait around, just throw yourself out in the world, start making stuff happen. Is that, is that a true story? Yeah, no,
1: I I read that as a senior in high school and I was blown away by the idea that you could just fling yourself out into the world with nothing and figure it out. And I did that all through college. I mean, my, I worked in the summer, but my work was of the nature of Oh, the Exxon Valdez oil spill happened in Alaska. I'll go clean it up. No job. You just showed no, up. Just showed up. I did the same thing in Steamboat. So I, I developed that capacity, and I think that is part – there's a – there's an element of risk taking, there's an element of making stuff happen, mm-hmm. figuring it out and just being out on the edge of stuff. And I think, you know, I did that in Steamboat. We didn't have a place to live or a job and we're eating raisin bran down by the river. <laughs> you know and and we f- we figured that out. So if you're comfortable in that kind of space, you might also be comfortable in pushing the envelope of an, of corporate environmentalism, which we've done here. We've done a lot of things that have been problematic and have gotten us or me in trouble, and so I think that all started with Jack Kerouac.
0: So when you're on the edge like that and you're pushing the edge, you're inevitably, inevitably going to make mistakes and you're going to have failures, but I'm of the belief that when you and when you fail, there's a great lesson in there somewhere and you can take that and run with it. So when you think back on any quote Failures you've had over your career—is there a favorite one that comes to mind? One that was pivotal, pivotal in your learning process, and allowed you to go on and have other successes?
1: Yeah. So one of my realism precepts has been: you got to be honest. You know, in, in my field, people will build a green building and it won't work, and then they'll say, "Look at how great this building is," <laughs> and I didn't like that. So. Early on in my work here at Aspen Skiing Company, I would be very, very honest about our failures, the light bulb failure. You know, it took forever to change the light bulbs. Um, I had a number of other problems, but that openness and that transparency got me in trouble. And it, it came in the form of an interview with Bloomberg uh, at the time, Businessweek, and it ended up being a, a cover story. Called Little Green Lies, where I was appeared to be taking it out on my colleagues and complaining about our inability to get anything done. And what I was doing was being transparent. But I what I'd failed to do is share with the company and leadership that what I was doing. <laughs> you know, I wasn't communicating. Lack of communication. And um, so, so there was that piece and. Uh, I, I think that taught me about hey, you know you got to bring everyone along with you, and you, you, you can't just be out there and, and. How old were you when this happened? Oh, this was probably you know I was probably thirty five. Okay,
0: okay, wow, yeah that that would be quite the lesson. Um, speaking of your early days at, at Aspen Skiing Company, I remember in your book you mentioned the CEO at a point when you started, uh, Pat O. O'Donnell. O'Donnell. Yeah. And can you talk a little about him? Because you guys seem to share a common theme of just throwing yourself out there. Like he hiked the yeah, John Muir tree. Trail. He,
1: he was a remarkable guy. And you could almost – you could trace part of the, the outdoor industry environmental movement to him. Mm-hmm. So this is a guy who, who, when he was young, went to Yosemite and hung out with people like Yvonne Chenard and Warren Harding. Really? Uh, and Galen Rowell. And, and this, this whole, you know, the stone masters in Yosemite. Yep. And uh, they said to him, well, what you got to do if you're a tough guy is hike the John Muir Trail alone without a sleeping bag. <laughs> and they hadn't done that. But he said, okay, and did it. You know, it's 211 miles. <laughs> and, and, and then he climbed with them. And so he had – and he worked – as like a bellboy in the hotel that Ansel Adams was in. So he had this core uh, environmental piece of his life. And then he ended up at CEO of Patagonia because he knew okay, And then he went to Whistler. He was at the Yosemite National Institutes as well. But when he came here, he was at a kind of apex point in his career where he could demand some things. And he demanded three things. He said, one, basically, if I'm going to come work for you, I want you to create a foundation funded by employees where the company matches their donations and the employees give it away. Wow. He had tried that at Patagonia and failed. Hmm. Um, I want to start an environmental department, the first in the industry. I want that person to be part of senior management. And then third, I want to create a set of guiding principles for the company because he came in and he asked people, why, are you here to, why do you come to work? And they said, either, <laughs> I don't know, or to make a paycheck. And he said that's not a that's not a sustainable business. No. So we have guiding principles now, and those principles are, you know, that we we should live passionately, that we should treat people well, that we should protect the environment, all these things that you can actually get fired up to come to
0: work about. And so you, I feel like one of the main reasons you guys are able to do that and have been able to do that forever. And correct me if you disagree, is because you're a private company. And I feel like from from what I know about business and markets and, you know, got a graduate degree in that stuff, the publicly traded companies just can't, it doesn't work to have those values because they don't balance with trying to hit quarterly numbers. I Do think you, I think that was
1: true when we started uh-huh. and it's accurate, but not anymore.
0: Well, that's good.
1: And the reason is that uh, n- now, well, well, first, we not only are privately held, but we have incredible ownership that has given us license to do what we think is right. Mm-hmm. Um, we're owned by the Crown family in Chicago, and they have you know, supported some of our wilder ideas, and that's been good for us, good for the company, good for them, but- But today, it used to be that the risk was not having an aggressive environmental climate position as a corporation. And let's talk publicly traded. And now I think there's substantial risk in not having that position. Mm -hmm. So look at Vail, which is – You know, has launched a very aggressive operational greening program that I personally would argue might not be that good a business move. But they're doing it because there's so much pressure to deal with the climate problem. Now, the challenge with that, with their approach, is they're looking at themselves. And I have advocated that the business has to use voice and activism and advocacy to drive change because that's where the big power is. And I don't think you'll see that from publicly traded corporations.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And one of the other things that I've seen you talk about or read is the, the importance of using your com- a company as a lever for policy change because go, going back to how you, you say things like they are and you, you don't sugarcoat things, you know, I, I think I read that you said if you know if Walmart all of a sudden went hundred percent carbon neutral, that'd be great, but it really wouldn't make a dent in the in the overall global climate change problem because we've got entire countries that aren't in line with it yep. and so the importance the important part is to use it as a lever. Can you talk a little bit more about Yeah,
1: that? well this gets into a, a real problem that I've been thinking about a lot, a lot lately. When we talk about solving climate change, that conversation whether it's an individual or a corporation always goes back to individual action. You should, you should be a vegetarian. You should drive a Prius. The corporation should be carbon zero, net zero and that's that's a logical fallacy basically because climate is such a big problem it's a societal systemic global problem that requires massive systems change and we have about a decade to fix it and it doesn't matter if you're a vegetarian it just doesn't and in fact the fossil fuel industry has pushed to to make this an individual issue because then the blame's on you instead of them. Mm-hmm. There's a great podcast called Drilled that gets into this in great detail. So so that's been, you know, I've long argued this is a problem. Mm-hmm. And when you say that to people, they get very offended. Don't tell me not to recycle. Well, I'm, I'm saying recycle, but don't think that's the solution. So what's the solution? Well, whatever you are, individual, government, Uh, Corporation, you have power somewhere, a lot Mm -hmm. of power. And you got to think where is it and how do you wield it? So, uh, as a corporation, our voice, our CEO making a statement in Washington on the need for action on climate is powerful. Small business wields power. We have marketing. Uh, power in national magazines, we get covered by the press, we have people visiting here who could be heads of state who definitely are CEOs who can drive change, we can reach them here. So we're constantly thinking about leverage. And it's never, you know, when we get criticized, it's always about why we're not doing more small individual things. And if and it's never really recognizing that we're trying to do the biggest things we possibly can.
0: Um, And so this is a, a sensitive subject that makes people mad. But I know that I wouldn't ask anybody, but you're you're such a positive, proactive person. I want to hear your response to this. Very simple. What do you say to climate change deniers? How do you deal with them? Because they're not I know that they're not bad people. The majority of them are not bad human beings. They're they're trying to make a living. They're, you know, just like everybody else. But for some reason, they can't get their head around this this issue. And so how do, you, how do you communicate with, the, with folks like that who, who don't seem to be able yeah. to understand that?
1: Well, first, you've got to remember that something like 60% of Americans don't believe in evolution, mm-hmm. and we still land at a man on the moon. Mm-hmm. So we can achieve great things technologically based on science without – you don't need the whole population. Sure. So you don't have to worry that much. And we have a majority of Americans, 70%, who think it's climate is a problem. So, so that's point one. Point two is it's always ideological. It's not science-based. So when someone denies the science, they're not actually denying the science because you can't. And so to, to speak to them in those terms is important. You know, one, one way of talking is, hey, look, if you – you probably don't want to talk about climate science because you fear big government intervention. Mm-hmm. Well, did you see Mexico Beach, Florida – Um, Did you see the fires in California? That was massive government intervention. And you're going to have to increase taxes to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So if we don't solve this problem, you're going to get a police state. If you work on it now, you're going to have less government, one. And two, there's some really interesting libertarian solutions to climate change, like eliminating the payroll tax and taxing carbon. Mm -hmm. The right loves that, the left loves. So make it non-ideological. And the third point, which is my bar fight, use, you know, approach, is if you don't believe the science, please give me the peer-reviewed science that backs your position. Mm -hmm. Give it to me now. Oh, you don't have it? Here's my phone number, email, and cell phone. Send it to me. Can I call you to ask for it in a week? Because it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. They can't deliver it. And oh, by the way, it has to be peer-reviewed, right? You understand that. It has to be published in a peer-reviewed journal. Okay.
0: Nothing. You get nothing. That's interesting. And so you're you obviously write a ton, you're, you're all over lots of publications. And with that, I'm sure comes a lot of flack, whether it's emails or calls. And how is that dealing with that? I mean, does it does it ever? I mean, I guess it doesn't get to you because you wouldn't be doing this. You wouldn't still be doing it if it did. But how do you deal with that kind of criticism? Well,
1: first, you have to ignore it, especially in the era of the internet, where mm-hmm. people are vicious. Uh, second, in, in, in some cases, I do like to engage. And often I'll, I'll try to engage in a civil way and and get to some kind of understanding with people. And then you, I think you have to realize that you're not going to get everyone on your side. And sure. being civil is most important. And that uh, there are a lot of people who are you don't need to listen to if they're rude and mean and over the top. You know, I get attacked a lot as a hypocrite, right? Because I work at a ski resort, I live in Aspen. Um, and who am I to talk? Mm-hmm. And in part, the answer is, this is the place to talk, right? We have access to power. This is a center of wealth. It's just because of all the hypocrisy around here that we ought to be talking. Sure. That we ought to be working on this issue. So I guess it, it bothers me less and less. And I'm also in, on town council in Basalt, and you get just destroyed in that position. <laughs> and I, I, I have developed a, a thick skin. That's another benefit of being older.
0: Have you always had a, a version so. of that? I don't think really? so. I don't think so. Um, so speaking, you said you were on town council in you know, Basalt even though it's right down the road from Aspen, it's it's a diverse community with diverse socioeconomic and, and political views. And you wrote a great piece about the aftermath of the big fire this past summer and how that fire allowed people to come together in a way that is unfortunately not the norm these days with the current political climate. Can you talk a little bit about just about that fire and then the aftermath of it?
1: Yeah, well, you know, the the fire was – was so big and scary that, and most people in town thought they were going to lose everything.
0: I can't believe it. I, it this just, is the first time I've seen.
1: Yeah, it. It just appeared that the whole town was going to burn down, and I was standing with the police chief and the fire chief, looking across the valley, and I was doing the math in my head. Okay, I'll get four hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> what can <laughs> I? What can I do with this? And the the response was, you know, the response that that saved us was by you could argue a segment of the community that was conservative, mm-hmm. that was not necessarily on the, you know, left climate leaning side, mm-hmm. but it it didn't matter. And these were this was a, a kind of display of American competence that you know, showed this civic love and uh, interest in service and, and also this element of kind of being a hero. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I told one guy who um, I'm sure is a climate science denier. Uh, I thanked him for fighting the fire. And, he, and, and I said, I know that was dangerous because they were almost overrun in this trailer park. And he said it was, it was sporting you know it's I mean so these tough. are these are so guys tough. these are guys who love this kind of thing so anyway it it all these things always do unite the community yeah um, and you don't want that to have to be the thing that brings you together but the uh, it does
0: that's a great answer and it's amazing how those kind of tragedies bring people together there's a great book Called Tribe by Sebastian Younger. I yeah, don't know if I've, you've read it.
1: I've read it. God, yeah, it so good.
0: I, yeah. I'm sure people on this podcast are sick of me talking about it because yeah. I mention it every time. Um, so, you know, you, you're obviously going as hard as you can here at Aspen Skiing Company, and then you're a, a well known speaker and writer, and you've got all these different things going on. And I would think that given your ability to write and your ability to come up with these big ideas, you could easily. It wouldn't be easy, but I know you could do it. Is go off and be an author or a speaker or a person who goes to conferences all day. Yet you choose to stay here in the trenches, battling it out. Where does that that come from? I mean, just a love of uh, of the importance well, and first, practice.
1: <clears throat> first, don't oversell the trenchiness of my position. Right i <laughs> I work at a ski resort. Uh, I ski a lot. I'm a exercise fanatic, yeah. but not like the crazy people. I like to get a little exercise every day. You know, I I I have good work life balance. So, you know, if you go off on your own, that's hard. You know this. It's you gotta hustle and you gotta Mm -hmm. you have contract work and so forth. So one, that's rough. And two, I've got this weapon here, which is a corporation. The lever. Yeah. (laughs) I've got a big lever and the there aren't a lot of these out there. I don't have a lot of peers who are doing what I'm doing or what I'm allowed to do or what we're allowed to do and so it's not I'm not I'm no hero you know I'm just in a, in a really good position and trying to make the most of it I think the, the the question ought to be well why aren't you complacent and you know just hanging out and it's interesting to keep pushing you mm-hmm. know and, it, and the second I'd be like oh I, I can't think of the next ridiculous thing to do I think I should find another job
0: Sure. Uh, well, our mutual friend Tori Udall before before I came up, we were talking, and we were both saying that we don't understand how you get so much done, both here and then. You're obviously doing sports outdoors. You got a full time family. You go hard all day. So this is kind of a kind of an odd question, but I'm curious just for my own education. What does your daily routine look like? I mean, how do you cram all this? And what time do you get up? Yeah. Do you do the same thing every day, or is it just kind of wake up and go?
1: Well, the, I think that the answer to the "how do you get stuff done" thing is first, it's tapered a lot since I had kids. Yeah, I know that, uh, <laughs> but uh, the I think the way to get stuff done is to is to do things quickly in a kind of executive skills way. So when you read stuff, you're skimming it, but you're getting it, mm-hmm. and then you're when you do stuff, you have to do it quickly, and you're not going to get that you're not going to get the hundred percent perfection. You're going to get 80% Mm -hmm. and you get it done. And so I was just in a conversation with someone and I kept kind of trying to move them forward saying, just make the point quickly and I'll answer it quickly. Nothing, no offense. So there's that executive management that I think is important. My day is, you know, get up, get the kids to school, then get to work. Mm. And, I'm going to have larger projects that are like pushing a bowling ball up a hill mm-hmm. that I have to push on a little bit. So I'll push on those. But then I more and more have throughput where I do interviews or I write stuff or I talk to people. And that's starting to gum up my days more and more. Mm-hmm. But I'm sorry. No, no, yeah. <laughs> that wasn't. I wasn't <laughs> passive aggressively trying to get you out of the room. Uh, but – but but there's value in that because yes. media is really important and and part of what I'm doing is trying to create a movement or foster bolster a movement and then and then this is I think important I disappear midday and get some exercise nice and I, and I encourage my employees to do that too and our company culture includes that and the reason I do is one all my good ideas come at that point two I'm much more effective in the afternoon three. It's almost work anyway because I'm out there thinking about something I'm working Mm -hmm. on. And it keeps me healthy. And you want, you know, a corporation wants a healthy workforce. So I'll do anything from skin up tie hack to hike the bowl to go to the gym. I've I've gone to the gym since I was 18. You Mm -hmm. know, I'm a gym rat. Uh, and and th- that's really important. And most corporations, people are they feel guilty and sheepish about getting out. But you're way more productive. And then then you you know come back and you're ready to bang through some stuff. And so you're knocking out a few projects while you're also getting deluged with people walking into your office or phone calls or you know administrivia that you have to do.
0: And so you mentioned your kids and what a big part of your life they are now. When they arrived. How did that change your thoughts on on the importance of solving this climate change problem, if, if it did at all?
1: Well, you know, I, it, it can be cliche to talk about this, your, your kids, you know, now you're thinking about your kids. But for me, the kind of awareness of being a parent and a father allowed me to understand literature and other people's thinking about the world mm-hmm. in a way that I hadn't before. So I don't know if you've read The Road.
0: I have not, and, and it continues. It. to – I know, I know. And it,
1: you actually might wait till your your son is six. Two, I've Who's got two daughters. Okay, so. okay. So wait till one of them is six or seven, because in the book,
0: is it going to depress me? I hear oh, it's just going yeah. oh, to destroy <laughs> you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not as resilient Flore- as you. I don't know it's if it's going to destroy me.
1: Florence Williams, yes, uh, yes. Writer. She uh, she said it depressed her for a year. Did her? I love her, um, book, but it, by it's, by the way. It's, yeah. Uh, it's worth it. How are you doing this to me? I so will. so anyway, there's a, a child in the book, and the child talks like a child. Cormac McCarthy is very good at getting voice. And you understand parenthood. That's what the book is about. It's about trying to protect your children and not being able to, which is climate change. And it's so it's so beautifully written, and it's such a – I mean, he's such a master mm-hmm. that – if I hadn't had kids, I wouldn't have been able to understand it, and that's why I say wait till your your child is seven or, whatever to to get that. But so it gave me this. All the the cliche things about kids apply, but this gave me an understanding of, of really other people's view of children and existence.
0: I will read that. It continues to come up on this podcast. All of McCarthy stuff comes up on the podcast yeah. time and time and time again, but. I'm going to have to get psyched up. i got three years to get psyched up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I've got some kind of quick questions that I ask everybody towards sure. the end, and yeah. it's pretty cool to compare and con- contrast all the answers. So when you think about the American West, what is your all-time favorite, or you can one or two, favorite books about the West? Oh, that's a good one.
1: You know, the reason I'm hesitating to answer is I know – I've read a lot of Western writing, and there is uh, – um, there's a lot of stuff out there that really is is remarkable so there's a book called the sheep
0: queen never heard of by that
1: thomas savage which is about identity uh who we are so so that's just i mean that's just where we come from that's just what tom savage a uh, one example of some of the like incredible deep western literature
0: well you can rattle off a lot
1: yeah i mean Everyone would answer this question with Wallace Stegner, but the book that I like of his is Crossing to Safety, Mm -hmm. which isn't about the West per se. It's about
0: relationships between
1: middle-aged – have you read it?
0: No, but David Gessner, who wrote this unbelievable um, double biography of Stegner and Abby, I had him on the podcast, and that's one that he mentioned as well, and I have not read
1: it. Right, and then my daughter's named after Willa Cather. Oh, really? And her – My my Antonia is about someone with this like unbelievable zest for life, an immigrant who has this incredible who's who's Stegner wrote about, Antonia or Antonia, however you pronounce it, who you know is the West personified, and so that's a beautiful book, but man, there's a lot. There's Cormac McCarthy, you know his his idea of um, catharsis Mm -hmm. through pain and even violence is
0: grotesquely appealing to me. (laughs) Do you read equal amounts of fiction and nonfiction or is it?
1: Yes, I do. But I prefer fiction and I'm actually trying to read more fiction because I think it's more about who we are as people. And I'm so burnt on, you know, I've read every climate science and policy book out there and I'm bored. Need to reset. And then, but, but there's some really interesting, obviously tweaky nonfiction out there. So I, I'm i probably 70, 30. 50.
0: I got to read more fiction. I just read one by Peter Heller, the painter. Yeah, I
1: know Peter. He's from Paonia.
0: God, that book is so... He's great. He's yeah. so good. And that was... This is embarrassing, but that was the first fiction book I'd read in like six years. And I picked it up and I could not stop reading yeah. it. So and next is Dog Stars.
1: Well, Dog Stars is an homage, I think, to The Road.
0: Probably so. It, it yeah, is. from a from little bit it's, I know about both. And it's
1: beautiful. Yeah,
0: I can't wait. Can, can, this, can you pick your favorite book of all time?
1: You know, I think it's 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 either On the Road or The Road. The road. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. think
0: it's The Road. The Road is just
1: beautiful. Even the way he writes uh, and 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 makes up words that seem sure. kind of antiquated uh, is poetry.
0: It's, it's like two hundred pages it, of poetry.
1: It's, it's brilliant. So that I love for for all those things. And then On the Road is such a a lot of people will scoff at Kerouac as a great writer. They, he's not considered a great writer. But the energy and the the experience and the and the homage to the West, I mean, that's the book. Mm-hmm. On the Road is about the West. Yeah. It's about the expanse of the country. It's about the, the capacity of humans to do great things in great landscapes.
0: I love – we could just do the whole podcast about all these books. You should do a book, yeah. a book <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um So – are there any films or documentaries that are your all-time favorites? It doesn't have to be about the West.
1: I like apocalyptic dark. What's going films. on here? <laughs> and I, <laughs> I'm so happy. And I, up- yeah, upbeat. <laughs> I, I don't know why I like Blade Runner so much, but it's a. It, but I think because it's a, it's a beautiful poetic film. Yeah. You know, um, the hero in Blade Runner says he says to as he's dying, he says to Harrison Ford. I've seen things you people couldn't understand. Starships on fire, attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. Um, and, uh, And that notion, you know, I have seen things. You know that's being alive, right? That's a, sure. that's consciousness, and so it just happens to be this dark, violent, apocalyptic movie. <laughs> and then, uh, then Apocalypse Now is another favorite, which, you know, it's about the quest, and it's it's about the, you know, the darkness in us. And sure. I think, you know, you this element of. Evil and darkness is a part of my life, right? We're sure. fighting the great evil in this climate problem. It's a really big problem. And we're fighting human nature and we're fighting, you know, willful denial by fossil fuel business, you know. So there's – you don't have to be unhappy to appreciate those things.
0: Yeah, you're definitely not unhappy. Are you an endurance athlete?
1: Not not in any normal way. I'm a mountain mountaineer. Mountain, yeah, yeah. So I know long days where you're just plodding and a little bit of, and I've always a done bit bit that. A little bit of suffering. So that's endurance and
0: that, Yeah. Yeah, well that fits too, you know, because that being able to just grind and get in your own head and enjoy yeah. the pain. Yeah. Um, so this is a good question that I always love hearing the answer. If when you think about all the outdoor experiences you've had, is there one that comes to mind that's the most powerful and that could be scary, funny, um, heartwarming, like with your family, just just one that comes to mind as being the most powerful outdoor experience you've had.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of my in a lot of what has influenced my life has been outdoors, mm-hmm. and I've had many, many, uh, extremely powerful experiences. I would say that being being in the Grand Canyon. For 18 days and sleeping on the beach and waking up and getting into the rhythm of the river, and not wearing anything but a pair of shorts the whole time, Mm -hmm. and that was profound. But I'll just give you a couple others as because there's it's so important. I think another would be I climbed Denali and I did it with a friend, and uh, it was it was the culmination of so much for me that when we got to the summit we were in tears. And I hadn't thought that. You know, I I'd, I'd thought that I was a tough guy, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and and then when I was, you know, 14, getting brutalized in the Bob Marshall wilderness was another one. But but since this is such an interesting topic to me. I will say, recently I was in Yosemite. I've been a rock climber my whole life. I had never climbed in Yosemite. And I did a – I led a route that was – it was moderate. You know, it's not hard. Mm-hmm. But I did it. And I talked to people who were on the route and I was there with a friend and another friend came up and I got to the top and I said to this guy, this is the best, this is one of the best experiences of my life. And he said, really? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, I mean, this is, this was like Yosemite means so much TR mm-hmm. and John Muir and Yvonne Shenard and David Brower and climbing. It's the cradle of so many things. So yeah, I have a lot of those experiences.
0: I had the same thing on Denali. I did. And you know, just so focused on being tough, getting up there, and then when I finally got there, and it took me two two tries. When I got there, goggles got filled up with tears. <laughs> I couldn't help it. It's it profound. came out of nowhere. It's pro- yeah, exactly.
1: I was not like, oh, this is gonna be, but but my friend before we did it, he's when we were planning the trip, he said, and if we do this, and we do this, and we do this, and we do this on day fourteen or sixteen or whatever. We might be on top and how crazy would that be? And I thought, yeah, how about that? That's a cold place. You yeah. talk about
0: going going oh, into yeah. deep dark places.
1: Yeah. No, my I said to someone on Denali, I was like, it's only been minus twenty for five days and they're like, No, your thermometer's broken. <laughs> it doesn't go below minus twenty. It was minus forty.
0: It yeah. For people who haven't been there. You can't get your head around it. from a guy from Eastern North Carolina, I'm not, I'm not built for that. Congrats. Same to you. I mean, it was not pretty, (laughs) but I I did. Well, it (laughs) doesn't need to be. Um, So where's your favorite location in the West? And it could be the top of a certain mountain, a certain trail, certain river.
1: Yeah. There are beautiful places right around here. And, you know, the, the, The backcountry is getting overrun. Yeah,
0: don't give any specifics. And I'm not going to
1: give specifics, but it's being overrun, and I see that as both positive and negative. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's negative for you and me. It's our space, right? I want to be in my own. I want it all to myself. Sure. It's positive because these are all environmentalists. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have a number of places up the Frying Pan Valley or even in the Maroon Bells wilderness that are just stunningly beautiful. They're hard to get to mm-hmm. people don't go there there's good fishing and you get there and you know your blood pressure drops and you're happy and um, it's it's paradise and there's a you know there's a there's a lot of it and the beauty of backpacking you know as Randy, you said once. He said, "I don't think snow camping is be- going to become the sport of the masses." <laughs> and uh, it, backpacking, even, you know, especially as we get older, it's brutal. And when you're carrying your kid stuff, no, so,
0: I haven't. I haven't gotten to that point yet. So
1: it keeps people away.
0: Sure. Yeah, and this this place is just a absolute dreamland for that. I was looking up this summer to get to fly around the elks in a helicopter and look down. I mean, I've spent some time back in there, but. I mean, there's so many little nooks and crannies where you could go where nobody's ever been. Right, it's and, beautiful. and
1: Colorado's unique. You know, I've done a, a lot of hiking in Montana, and you're bashing through the bushes a lot. And, and you're not in, you don't have great vistas all the time. Mm-hmm. But in Colorado, you're up high and you're
0: looking around. It's amazing. Yeah, we're lucky. Um, wh- what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? You know, the best,
1: the best thing I've heard. So Ben Franklin used to; have, he knew he was imperfect, and he had a um, thirteen virtues. And, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, right. And instead of trying to do each all of them every day, he tried one for a week. And he, he <laughs> never. About that. And the hardest virtue for him was humility. And to me, that that quality is very, very hard to attain. Um, it's very hard, as you know, I was a young, confident, aggressive guy. And I was self-promotional and, you know, and not humble. And that's bad. You know, like that's not good. You need humility. (laughs) You need to recognize part of humility is recognizing other people's agency and their compassion and not judging them as, you know, well, your motivations are wrong sure, um, and not jumping to conclusions. And so – and it's it's an ongoing project. You know, you see why it was hard for Franklin because Franklin was a genius mm. oh, yeah. and a talent. Um, and I'm not comparing myself to Franklin at all. I'm just saying it's hard for everybody. So that – you know, that's another piece of practice. How do you get up in the morning and not think you have all the answers and and – realize that if you're presented with a problem, the way to fix it isn't to figure it out. It's to start asking people. Mm-hmm. You know? And I do a lot of that, which is, hey, what do you think I should do? What do you think we should do? What's the right thing here? And even to the, you know, to the other side of the political spectrum, hey, why do you think that way? Mm-hmm. And is this true? You know, wh- wh- give me some, Help me with some insight. Anyway, humility.
0: I think that's great. So next to the last question, if you could make a request of the people who listen to this podcast, as people who love the American West in one way or the other, whether through sports, through art, through conservation, agriculture, um, if you could either ask them to do something, offer some words of wisdom, is there something that comes to mind?
1: Well, I think that we're suffering a a little bit of a failure of of democracy and citizen citizenship in the United States and so I would ask people to engage and that there's so many ways to do that you can be a volunteer at your thrift shop you can run for town council you can be on the planning and zoning board you can get go to rallies like be part of your community mm-hmm. and you know even I kind of sneak into my house at night and try not to chat with my neighbors because I got to do stuff. But you got to do that. You Indeed. know, you have to be part of society and and there's gratific- great gratification in it. So engage as citizens. And that, by the way, that's going to require you to mess around with people you don't like. Mm-hmm. That's being human. That's being part of community. We have to do that.
0: That advice is more important now than ever. So how can people keep up with everything you're doing, keep up with your writing? Is there a central spot online where they can go?
1: You know, unfortunately, if you follow me on Facebook, (laughs) (laughs) I don't recommend Facebook. I don't like it, but I post stuff on my Facebook page, and uh, that's probably the the best place you, you, and then you should get off it immediately yes I
0: agree yeah. I'm with you but I'll, I'll link to all that well thank you this was really awesome I oh really it was appreciate my pleasure you No, oh,
1: you're, you're a good interviewer
0: hey it's Ed again thanks so much for listening to the podcast and thanks for listening to that particular episode I hope you enjoyed it before you go I've got three quick things number one if you like the podcast please do me a huge favor either pass it along to a friend who may be interested share it on your social media and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to mountain and prairie slash reading, or just go to mountain and prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.